Good morning, Redeemer. It's wonderful to be with you, to continue uh, in God's Word. Uh, here we, we see uh, that God is mighty to save. And so, so let's pray that God would uh, speak to us. He would show us Himself in His Word, uh, that we might have hope and be used by Him. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you for the book of Judges, though so much of it seems far away. Much of it does seem familiar. We do feel that we are prone to wander. So we, as your people in all times, throw ourselves on your mercy and ask that you would show us yourself today, that you would change us as we hear your word Father, would you give us hope in Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, we began today by calling all nations, all creation to pray for the Lord in our first song. We long for our God to work. We long for our God to save. We long for the day when every nation would bring honours to its king. Yet, there seem to be so many obstacles. So many people who haven't heard the name of Jesus. So many forces that seem to be at work against God, His church. As we consider our part in this, we can feel so weak, so small. What can we do? How will God save? Well, friends, as we come to Judges today... We will see that God is mighty to save. God is always mighty to save. And that God saved then in surprising ways. And that that same God is mighty to save today. That our God saves in surprising ways. We're going to start by working through uh, these, first, these two chapters, chapters 3 and 4 of Judges, quite quickly. I'll read through uh, what happens there and just give some comments along the way. So make sure you open it sort of on your phone, in your Bible, uh, and then we'll come back and uh, think of some lessons that this leaves for us. But let's jump straight in to the passage that Carter read for us, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, where we'll see that God saves. As we come to this first judge, Othniel, uh, we return to this cycle that we were told would occur again and again through Judges. The people of Israel, verse 7, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God is so good to us. He cares for us. He provides for us. He saves us. Yet His people then, they forgot Him. They turned from their good Lord and served idols. Therefore, we're told, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served this king for eight years. And it's easy for us to just say, oh, that's another step in the cycle of judges. But we should stop and see eight years is a long time. Eight years is a long time for God's people to be under the rule of others. Eight years of being oppressed. Eight years without freedom. Eight years of servitude. And so we're told the people cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. 
And here we meet the ideal kind of saviour for God's people. We meet Othniel, son of Kenaz. Now, Othniel is like an Israelite knight in shining armour. We met him back in chapter 1, and Othniel had already shown himself to be a war hero. He'd been brave, he'd won great victories. Othniel was the younger brother of Caleb, one of the only faithful Israelites in the former generation. Othniel was a hero, he'd married a wise wife, we saw in chapter 1. He was your Israelite knight in shining armour from the tribe of Judah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and we're told he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand. His hand prevailed, so the land had rest for 40 years. Here we see the first round of this cycle. Though God's people are sinners, though God's people are prone to wander, God is rich in mercy. And he saves, and he saved by raising up, sending his spirit upon a judge, a leader. And we met Othniel. And Othniel is like the knight in shining armor. If you're into superheroes, he's like Superman. Like he's powerful, he's a savior, and he's also a nice guy. But after this first judge, this knight in shining armor, we're going to turn to like a dark knight. After the nice superhero Superman, we're going to meet some people who are more like Batman. You know, a superhero yet with issues. Uh, after Othniel, we see that well, God saves, but in verses 12 to 30, we'll meet Ehud and see that God saves, but in surprising ways. Verse 12, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they'd done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, the people of Israel, they forgot the goodness of their God, their Savior, they turned. <clears throat> and God uh, is faithful to judge. Uh, we're told <clears throat> God gave them into the hand of Eglon, and this... Uh, this king of Moab gathered even other nations and they oppressed Israel for 18 years. Uh, we're told that then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the, God, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So this cycle is going as normal so far, except this guy seems like a less likely saviour. He's not from the tribe of Judah, he's from the less impressive tribe of Benjamin. And we're told he's left-handed, uh, which we're told he's left-handed because, well, typically strength was associated with the right hand. Throughout the Bible, it speaks of the Lord's right hand as a way of speaking about his strength. So it may be that he was left-handed, he wrote with his left hand, it may be that he had a deformity or a weakness. But we're told this is not an expected saviour. Secondly, he's not a military hero, he's a messenger. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. He was a messenger and the people of God don't seem to realise that they're being saved through him. You don't pay your taxes if you're planning to overthrow the government that afternoon. 
Yet the people of Israel, they, they send their offering through this messenger. God is stirring to save his people, yet his people don't see it. But there is a plan. Verse 16, Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon was a very fat man. And Eglon was probably so large because he'd grown fat on these tributes. They'd been harshly oppressing the people of Israel, forcing them to bring tributes, heavy taxes, and this man had grown heavy fat on, on these tributes. And we're told that when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, um, he turned to, to head home, but then he sent away all those who were with him. He himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. We see that King Eglon isn't just large, King Eglon is, is gullible. He falls for the old trick of, psst, I've got a secret. Uh, this, this proud king says, oh, a secret. Okay, every, everyone leave, I, I want to hear this secret. And Ehud uh, says again, uh, I have a message from God for you. And the king seems to think, oh, even more, and he leans in. What's this message for God? And we're told he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. This is not like Othniel, uh, this, uh, this wise, this noble warrior. Here, an assassin, an uh, assassin uh, who's used trickery. Yet God's enemy, the one who had grown fat on the oppression of God's people, had been defeated. Uh, he had looked like a fool, he looked gullible. And so to his servants, in verse 24, when he'd gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. And where this secret assassin, uh, who'd kind of gone secretly and won God's victory, uh, had won a victory in secret, he now comes out in public. Uh, he arrives, he sounds the trumpet, and he calls the people to come and fight with him. The people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And we're told they win a great victory. Moab was subdued and the land has rest for 80 years. Now, this is an uncomfortable story, isn't it? Because this isn't an Othniel. God is, seems to have worked through a trickster, through an assassin. Yet God doesn't dwell on the morality of Ehud. Here we're told, 
Well, he was the saviour, the deliverer that God had raised up. Uh, This really was a message from God to those who would oppress his people. And here we see even Ehud calls the people. He says, the Lord has given your enemies into your hands. We'll come back to consider what we do with this sort of confusing narrative, yet here we see God saves. But even if his people don't realise it's happening, God saves in surprising ways. I will see that he saves in surprising ways, but also with surprising people. And we'll see that in chapter 4, but first let's stop in 3 verse 31. There we meet Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. And we don't get the full cycle with Shamgar, yet we have a surprising saviour, because Shamgar is not an Israelite name, it's a foreign name. Anath is the name of a Canaanite god, so this is a foreigner, the son of a Canaanite god, or named after a Canaanite god. God seems to be delivering His people, saving His people in surprising ways and with surprising people. And that's where we come to chapter 4. We're told with sad predictability the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The commander of his army was Sisera. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. This is a serious enemy. 900 chariots of iron, superior military technology. They oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. For 20 years, 20 years of being subjected, 20 years of suffering. Yet as God's people had cried out, God will listen and God will save. Yet this this narrative will keep us guessing, who is God going to use? How will God save? Well, first we meet Deborah. Verse 4, Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel at the time. She used to come and sit under the palm of Deborah uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country. Uh, And people came to her for judgment. So she was a judge in the legal sense. She made judgments, legal judgments for the people. And we think, well, that might be her. But then God seems to, through her, appoint another judge. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abodanim, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I'll draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand." Now, here, God calls uh, a new leader, Barak, and He doesn't call him and give him a job. God gives him a full strategic battle plan. God said, this is your job, but actually, here's the plan. You need to draw out this many troops from this place, and then God says, I'm going to draw out your enemy to this place, and then I will give your enemy into your hand. God gives Barak 
he's, the, the victory on a silver platter that says, here you go, it's, it's yours to take. And Barak here, in, in a society where, of course, the military leaders would be men, uh, Barak, he has it all given to him, promised to him by God, yet he doesn't have the nobility of Othniel, he doesn't even have the cunning and instinct and, uh, of Ehud. Barak says back to Deborah, well, I'll only go if you come with me. Barak, this man being uh, honoured with winning God's victory, says, I'll only go if, Deborah, you stand in front of me. I will, only go, I will, go, I will go, if you go with me, I will go. But if you'll not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. We have a reluctant judge, a reluctant saviour. And Deborah says, well, you're not going to get the glory. And we assume maybe she might be the one who is going to win this victory. So they go out to fight. In verse 12, when Sisera, the enemy general, was told that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him uh, to the river Kishon. And again, Barak had this on a silver platter. You'd think Barak might take some initiative. God told him this is what would happen. God told him the victory was in his hands. Yet Deborah needs to tell him, come on, get up. Yalla, let's go. Uh, Deborah says to him, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? It feels like Barak's not even trying, but again, he's told, get up, go, and he does, and he wins a resounding victory. Barak hasn't even tried, yet we're told the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. All the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. God has worked to save even through a reluctant saviour. But there's one more surprise coming. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heba, the Kenite. Sisera goes to an ally, a non-Israelite, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, "'Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid.' So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So he opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. So here we have a mighty military commander, Sisera, who has kept the people of Israel in fear for 20 years. Yet just as Barak has seemed like a scared little boy, now Sisera, this mighty general, He's very tired, he needs a lie down, a blanket, and a glass of warm milk. He's being made to look, look quite foolish. This is not the fearsome general uh, that has oppressed God's people. And he says to her, just like Barak had said, I'm only fighting if Deborah, if you stand in front of me. Now Sisera, 
uh, says to Jael, stand at the opening of the tent, kind of be my human shield. And if anyone comes to you and asks, if anyone here, is anyone here? Literally, if anyone asks, is there a man here? Say no. We're told Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. So this foreign woman, this foreign woman who seems to have come from nowhere, defeats this fearsome general. God worked his salvation. We thought maybe through the prophetess Deborah. Well, no. Or maybe through Barak, this leader he raised up. No. But through a foreigner, a seemingly insignificant lady. And at that point, Barak still thinks he's got a victory to win. He's pursuing. Verse 20. But then Jael came, went out to meet him and said, Come, I'll show you the man you're, you're seeking. So he went with her to the tent, and there lay Sisera dead. God worked through surprising people. But in the end, the salvation didn't come through, well, Deborah, or Barak, or even through Jael. We're told in verse 23 that on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. See, God is mighty to save. Yet throughout these chapters, he's worked in surprising ways with surprising people and sometimes in disturbing ways. What does all this mean for us? I think it means three clear things for us. And the first is that powerful enemies are pitiful before God. You see, these, these people who were defeated, chapter 3 and chapter 4, they were powerful enemies. They had oppressed God's people for eight years, 18 years, 20 years of cruel oppression. It must have seemed to his people like this suffering, this oppression would never end. And throughout our world today, well, God's people in many places, in many ways, are oppressed and opposed. It can seem like there's no end in sight. These reigns of terror, these powerful enemies will rule forever. Yet these chapters show us that even powerful enemies are pitiful before God. God wins victories for His people. God will call all kinds of people whether it's a general, a left-handed messenger, a foreigner, a woman, a hesitant and fearful servant, or even the weather, God will bring all heaven and earth to save His people. He will move heaven and earth to save His people. Chapter 5 of Judges is actually a victory song that Deborah and Barak sing. And it gives us some inside information on how the salvation was won, how the victory occurred. And it's interesting to see that it wasn't just Barak that God was using uh, to deliver his people and win his, his victory. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, 
the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, yet the clouds dropped water. God sent rain. In 5 verse 20, from heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. It wasn't just Deborah and Barak fighting against Sisera. God said the heavens were fighting against Sisera. How? Well, verse 21, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Remember, those iron chariots were fighting on the banks of the river Kishon. So how did God win the victory? Well, He sent rain. And what happens when iron chariots are in muddy in muddy conditions. Well, they get stuck. And people might have looked at that and thought, wow, good luck. (laughs) Wow, that battle got won because of the good luck of the rain. But that was God saving His people, even as He moved heaven and earth and the weather to do it. Powerful enemies are pitiful before God and This actually speaks to what's uncomfortable about these chapters. As you heard them, I hope you realised they're meant to be funny. And that's uncomfortable. Are we allowed to to laugh in church? Are we allowed to laugh at misfortune? Like, it feels so wrong. Yet, here we see God is making His enemies, powerful enemies, seem laughable. Because the terror that they inflict, the suffering and oppression they inflict is no laughing matter. Yet even when the mightiest, most fearsome forces array themselves against God, we know He who sits in heaven laughs. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. But Psalm 2 verse 4 He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The laughter of these chapters, the silliness of these chapters is meant to make us remember. God is not scared. God is not scared by any ruler, by any oppressor. God is always mighty to save. And in this we see God bringing justice. If you go to the end of the the song in chapter 5, verse 26 to 27, there's a graphic retelling of the tent pegging incident. You you can go there and read it later. Uh, It's pretty gruesome. It seems to relish in the details. And that makes us really uncomfortable until you follow on in chapter 5 to see what the alternative is. 5 verse 28 says, Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Gives us a picture of Sisera, the the pagan general's mother, saying, Where's Sisera? Is he home yet? Has he returned from battle? Why, Why is his chariot delayed? And then it says, Sisera, her wisest princess's answer, indeed she herself, she answers herself. I say, oh, well, if Sisera is late coming home from battle, we, we know why. And the answer is, is sickening. Well, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. And that's as terrible as it sounds. 
Even Sisera's own mother says, well, if they've won a victory, they've probably enjoying the spoils of war. Women, property. And when we see what even Sisera's own mother knew, what that army, what that commander, what his men were like, we're reminded it's very right that God judges evil. It's very right that God would defeat his enemies. It's actually fitting that the instrument of God's justice here was a seemingly, uh, a seemingly anonymous woman. God used her to bring down this fearsome general. Because God will judge all evil. Uh, God will put an end. God will bring justice. No reign of terror will last forever. God will judge his enemies. No sin will go unnoticed or unpunished in the sight of our Lord and King. So 5 verse 31 says, May all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Earthly rest and deliverance here is a taste of the eternal rest. 40 years of rest from war is a reminder that one day God will give his people rest for all of eternity. He'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no evil there, no wrong, but God's people will be in his presence. Second, we see God saves in surprising ways. These chapters, we, we saw God saving in surprising ways. We had a hero, an assassin, a foreigner, a woman, a frightened leader, a foreign woman. God saves with increasingly strange weapons. A sword, then a dagger, then an ox goad, and then a tent peg. Like, what's next? Maybe a nail or a piece of wood. These increasingly strange and surprising saviors, they're pointing to the unexpected savior. These increasingly strange and unexpected saviors, they're making us long for a savior who will last. And in Jesus, we will have a Saviour whom God raises up from Judah with the Spirit of God coming upon him to save. Yet in Jesus, we also have someone from Nazareth. Who would suspect a carpenter from Nazareth? Who would suspect that as Jesus carried his cross up the hill that God was about to win his greatest victory? Who would suspect that the one God had raised up to save his people, would himself be pierced. Like Ehud, well, Jesus will win a decisive victory that no one expected. There were no lies in Jesus. Uh, there was no deceit in Jesus, yet he won a victory that no one saw coming. And now he has come to call his people to join in the victory. When Jesus came, his people were looking for an Othniel. Uh, they wanted a warrior who would valiantly lead them into victory over their enemies. Yet they didn't realize there was a much greater enemy to be overthrown than just the Roman Empire. Jesus came to overthrow Satan, sin, and death. 
Jesus came to save in a surprising way. Colossians 1.20 says, God made peace. How? Well, by the blood of his cross. That's surprising. He made peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He made them look pitiful. How? Well, by triumphing over them in Christ as he nailed our debt to the cross. As our Saviour Jesus was nailed to the cross. And as God has saved us surprisingly in Jesus, well, he continues to save that way. It might not look like God is doing anything. We might be like the people of Israel, just sending the next tribute because we don't see any any salvation coming. Yet God may be at work, working to save and deliver. It might not look like God is doing anything, just like the clouds are rolling in, but God may be arraying the forces of heaven and earth to win a great victory. God saves in surprising ways, and finally, God saves, uses surprising people. God uses surprising people, so willingly serve, and God will use your weakness. Did you notice how God used people, these deliverers, not despite their weaknesses, but actually through their weaknesses? God brought victory not despite Ehud being left-handed, but God brought the victory precisely because Ehud was left-handed. A warrior like Othniel would have never made it into the presence of King Eglon. But a left-handed man, like if they normally were looking, looking on the left thigh for a sword, maybe the bodyguards let, let Ehud through because he was just a messenger just a left hand, perhaps a crippled man. But God used that to win his victory. Shamgar was probably so effective because he was so surprising. A foreigner named after a Canaanite god. God used to save his people. God didn't save through jail even though she was a woman. God used the fact that she was a woman. Uh, Sisera Sisera let his guard down. And in God's strange, mysterious mercy, that's how he won his victory. Can you see that God prefers to use weakness to win his battles? Redeemer, we often say weakness is the way so that God gets the glory. And that gives us hope. It gives you hope that God can use you. You might feel like God won't use you, like because you're not an Othniel. I'm not from the right family. I'm not from the right background. I, I don't have some great impressive history of how I've been used. Yet God delights to raise up and to use people, weak people, so that He will get the glory. Who led you to Christ? Some might say, well, Tim Keller. Um, But for a lot of us, it was a school friend who was still working out their faith. It was a parent who sometimes struggled with patience. It was a co-worker who maybe didn't have the confidence to share the gospel themselves, but at least invited you along to church so you could hear it. 
We've all seen how God works in weakness. You might be new to following Jesus, and that might be exactly why God delights to use you, to show it's not in experience or power or knowledge that saves, yet it's His Spirit. You might feel like you're just a student, just an employee, just a housewife. But God might use that, precisely that, to send you where a pastor cannot go, where a pastor would not be listened to. God delights to use weakness because He gives the strength, He gives the salvation. So keep serving even in your weakness. Keep speaking even in your weakness. Weakness is the way so that God gets the glory. But finally, finally, willingly serve. Willingly serve and God will use your weakness. Chapter 5, that song, Celebrating God's Victory, it starts by celebrating, in 5 verse 2, those who offered themselves willingly to be used by God. And though God has won the victory, He shares the glory with His people. So you read through chapter 5, you'll see that while God works through weakness, so He gets the glory, His willing people get caught up in the reflected glory of their Saviour. Barak didn't win the victory. Deborah didn't win the victory. Not even Jael won the victory. God did. Yet God delights to share His glory. 5 verse 1 and 12, Deborah shares the glory. Verse 24, Jael shares the glory. Verse 1 and 12, even Barak, unwilling Barak, shares the glory. So much so that in Hebrews 34, uh, as we, we hear that the heroes of faith, you know, who's in that list? Barak. He didn't seem like a hero of faith, did he? <laughs> He resisted. He needed prodding at every point. Yet, in the end, he he obeyed and God used him. And he's there basking, sharing in the reflected glory of his Saviour as a hero of faith. It doesn't stop there. In verse 15 to to 17, the the tribes are caught up in this reflected glory. Sorry, verse 13 to 18. It talks of Ephraim, Benjamin, Zebulun, Naphtali. Uh, verse 18, Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. Even God's people, the tribes who came and joined in God's victory, they get caught up in this glory, this celebration. Because when God wins the victory, He loves to share the glory, the celebration, the honour with His willing and weak people. So will you keep speaking? Will you keep serving? If you know Jesus, God has you here for a purpose. Our God is drawing people to Himself from every tribe, language, people and nation. God is drawing people to Himself. They will be there on that final day. And He gives us the privilege of being used. And He calls us weak people. He calls us unlikely people and says we get to be a part of His salvation. We get to be a part of what He is doing. And as we serve willingly and in weakness, 
we get caught up in the reflected glory of our Saviour. Our God is mighty to save. He is working to save. Nothing will stop him. People from every tribe, language, people and tongue will be there. The Redeemer, will we be a part of that? Will we give ourselves willingly, even in weakness, to serve? Knowing that God works, God saves in surprising ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us that everything written in the former times was written that we might have hope. And Father, indeed, this passage does give us hope. Hope in Jesus. Hope in the victory, the surprising victory he has won. Hope that you might even work through us, weak yet willing people. So Lord, would you work? Would you continue to save Would you even work through us and our weakness so that you would get the glory? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.